Well, hello everyone and welcome to a brand new thesis theater. My name is Dr. Brenton Dickerson and I teach in the language and literature department at Signum University. Uh, our Signum master's students have the opportunity to write a thesis at the end of their degree program and they can explore a topic of their choice related to or coming out of the material they've studied in the previous years. And these thesis theaters are really a great opportunity for students to present research, but not just in the academic form of the, the final big honking paper that they produce that we, we, we are pleased to make them produce, but also to a more general audience in a conversational and presentation form. And this also allows them to tease out some of the implications of their work and answer questions from the audience, from you great folks. I, now, I love these events, and, and so I'm just really pleased to be here hosting uh, Miriam Davidson, also pleased as her supervisor to see this project come to this point. And today we're going to be talking about the sword, not for its sharpness, non-violent countercurrents in Tolkien's epic of war. Now, I'm going to introduce Miriam in a moment, but I want to give a couple of notes about uh, our Zoom live stream event today, this thesis theater, and some of the, the etiquette and protocol for that. This session is being recorded, so just be aware of that and will be part of Signum's YouTube channel when it's all finished uh, and goes up in a couple of days. Uh, and this is also not just part of Signum's digital profile, but part of Miriam's contributing to Signum's library of knowledge, which we love about these master's theses. Uh, Miriam will present for about 15, 20 minutes or so at the beginning of the session, followed by questions and answers. Probably I'll tease up a few questions and then turn to you, the audience. And we would love for you to ask questions. This is like why it's here. And I to do this, we would love for you to use the uh, question uh, and answer feature uh, rather than the chat. We suspect that the chat will be kind of a nice conversational thing with uh, greetings already from uh, Gabriel, uh, who's, who's here helping us host, but also um, a kind of, uh, you know, you know, people that have queries or thoughts or want to tease it out. That tends to be the chat. That makes it a little hard for me as the moderator of the questions to, to make sure I've gotten everybody. So use the question feature for the, the formal questions. And if you'd like to speak them out, just no, notify us of that in that question to say, I'll, I'll speak on my mic. Uh, and we love hearing those voices, but I can interpret the question uh, for Miriam. So I think now it's time to turn to the main show. We've got Miriam Davidson here. Uh, she has been practicing forensic psychiatric. She has been practicing as a forensic psychiatric nurse practitioner in the Department of Corrections for the past 15 years. She has a deep rooted love for fantasy literature and has pursued this MA degree to expand and strengthen her reading and writing skills. With the help of her husband and dogs, she spends her free time restoring a 200-year-old lighthouse in Down East, Maine. So Miriam is going to be presenting on her thesis, The Sword Not for Its Sharpness, Non-Violent Countercurrents in Tolkien's Epic of War. Why don't you go ahead, Miriam? Thanks for coming. Nice. Can you see my screen? Okay. Yeah, it, look, it looks great and you sound great. Okay, good. All right, so thank you for coming, everybody. Um, I will try to get through this. So. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien served in the British Army on the front lines during World War I and the Battle of the Somme in France in 1960. The Battle of the Somme lasted nearly five months, claiming the lives of over one million soldiers 
including nearly 20,000 British soldiers on the first day of combat, and was recorded as the worst day in British warfare. Tolkien suffered for months in the trenches, surrounded by mortar and machine gun fire. He felt firsthand the intensity of killing fellow men with whom he had no personal quarrel. Millions of Europeans, including two of Tolkien's closest friends, nearly half of his enlisted schoolmates, and most of his battalion were dead by the time the war came to an end in 1918. Tolkien's direct involvement in, the World war, in World War I with the British Army laid the foundation for his realistic appreciation of war's moral ambiguity and left him with no doubt about its horrors. The applicability and impact of Tolkien's works in my own life are the foundation for my interest in the violent and nonviolent tensions found in The Lord of the Rings. When I first opened the Fellowship of the Ring, Tolkien enchanted me with his world. Rivendell nestled deep in the hidden um, chasm and fair Lothlorien climbing upwards with ancient trees and elves. Most of all, it was the characters who captured my heart. Wise Gandalf, steadfast Aragorn, loyal Sam, and most of all, martyr Frodo, who saved Middle-earth by sacrificing himself for others. Each time I returned to reread The Lord of the Rings, the war and conflict permeating Tolkien's mythology brings rushing forward my deep-rooted and long-standing views on the aptness of nonviolent resistance under any circumstance. My non-fictional heroes have long been the likes of Gandhi and his reflective defiance and Martin Luther King with his powerful voice and guidance reverberating through a divided country. As much as I wanted to add Tolkien to this list of powerful advocates for the effectiveness on, on nonviolent techniques, it is clear that Tolkien's representation of violent conflict delve into the no man's land located at the overlapping point where forceful and peaceful action meet. The sparing of Gollum, Wormtongue, and Saruman highlight these commanding messages of compassion and restraint, yet the desperate bloodstained sacrificial sacrificial fight of Boromir for the protection of others at the conclusion of the Fellowship of the Ring also carries powerful messages of love, compassion, and courage. Tolkien's epic of war is as disturbed with countercurrents of nonviolence as my long-held belief in nonviolence is troubled by Tolkien's portrayal of war. Tolkien's creations reveal the reality that war is not to be sought, but neither can it be wished away with creative problem-solving, ideological hope, or sentimental beliefs. Tolkien's works demonstrate the terrible moral impasse that violence is highly destructive and should be avoided. Nevertheless, there are times when war is necessary. This tension is masterfully created by Tolkien, and although his works are not allegorical, there is a symbolic re resemblance. The fairy story mode is a way of reflecting truth without the use of allegory or satire, and his works reflect truths of war that are consumed by each reader uniquely. As a reader, I find myself drawn to the nonviolent actions, and yet I begin to understand the truth that violent engagement has a potential to play a role in conflict resolution. figure out how to advance the screen. Hang on one sec. Oh, there we go. All right. Um, Tolkien's work spend considerable time exploring the tragic necessity of war while simultaneously showing the physical and mental devastation that war exacts from the earth and those who experience it. 
considering Tolkien's war experiences, how should readers consider war and violence in The Lord of the Rings? Despite being a story about the great war of the ring, the main plot of The Lord of the Rings focuses on the largely nonviolent perseverance of Frodo and Sam to destroy the devastating weapon of the enemy. Sheer moral determination rather than military arms deposes Sauron's evil power. Yet there is no victory for Frodo and Sam without the armed power of Gondor to draw the eye of Sauron from the weary hobbits. Frodo and Sam's story highlight Tolkien's use of character and narrative to accentuate the courage and honor earned for those who sacrifice themselves in combat. His plot demands and often justifies violent action. The people of Middle-earth will not stand by as Sauron works to enslave and kill the free folk. Still, there is a clear and consistent emphasis on the cost and devastation these violent engagements bring. Tolkien's narrative strongly warns against the lust for power and the will to dominate others while elevating the importance of grace, forgiveness, and not striking without the gravest of need. Discovering the tensions at play between the honor of war and its human devastation, I explored the countercurrents of nonviolence in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. These countercurrents ultimately demonstrate that Tolkien's representation of war and nonviolence is impacted by his literary mode educational background, personal beliefs, and exposure to war. Historian John Garth describes the impact the war had on Tolkien. Personal loss was piled on top of the horror and exhaustion of battle. There was no counseling for bereavement or post-traumatic stress in the army. It was business as usual. Tolkien's company was sent to the front lines and Humphrey Carpenter describes, corpses lay in every corner, horribly torn by the shells. Those that still had faces stared with dreadful eyes. Beyond the trenches, no man's land was littered with bloated and decaying bodies. All around was desolation. The, the horror of war surrounding Tolkien quickly driving out his youth and naivety. Tolkien fell victim to trench fever, and as described by Carpenter, in a matter of days, he found himself transported from the horror of the trenches to white sheets and a view of the city he knew so well. Tolkien spent the rest of the war in a hospital or in home service camps. The recovery process was slow and interrupted by many relapses. Garth describes Tolkien as feeling hungry, lonely, and powerless, and oppressed by the universal weariness of all this war. Although Tolkien, Tolkien's direct involvement with combat was four months long, he spent well over two years in and out of hospitals and facing the prospect of returning to the battlefield. These years were traumatic, impactful, and grueling on, on Tolkien. Garth argues that the foundation of Tolkien's tragic experience in the First World War is the key to Middle-earth's lasting power. Tolkien used his mythological imagination not to escape from the gut-wrenching realities of his circumstances, but to reflect communicate and transform his knowledge into something that could be widely consumed and explored. Reviewing his tragic experience in the First World War, is, it is heartbreakingly easy to see how each horrifying event contributed to Tolkien's strong convictions about war. The desire, to, the desire for careful explore, exploration of war and its merits in his fiction would follow naturally, ultimately producing his complex stance on war throughout his works. One of, one of the most apparent impacts of the war in Tolkien's fiction can be, see, can be seen in battles, battle descriptions in The Lord of the Rings. These carry a grim likeness of that of his wartime exposure. 
the persistent artillery bombardment, the scent of gas, and the bodies of dead soldiers littering the battlefield. In the siege of Gondor and the return of the king, evil orcs are, quote, digging, digging lines of deep trenches in a huge ring, while others maneuver, quote, great engines for the casting of missiles. On the path to Mordor in the two towers, the air of the stronghold of Sauron is, quote, filled with a bitter reek that caught the breath and parched their mouths. Tolkien later acknowledged that the dead marches were the pools of muck and floating corpses. Oh, I'm sorry, that the dead marches with their pools of muck and floating corpses, quote, owe something to Northern France after the Battle of the Somme. The Psalm illustrates the waste and futility of battle. It is easy to see how those taking part in the war would become disillusioned, not only with war, but also with the very idea of a courageous and honor-filled battle. Yet Tolkien ultimately departed from his contemporaries, preferring a different tone and returned to ideas of hope and the ability to resist evil. The heroism of Tolkien's characters, no matter their strength, or stature depends on their capacity to resist evil and their tenacity in the face of defeat. It was this quality that Tolkien witnessed among his comrades on the Western Front. In 1964, in a 1964 BBC interview, Tolkien explains that, quote, I have always been impressed that we are here surviving because, the, because of the indomitable courage of quite small people against impossible odds. Tolkien explains with enthusiasm, the hobbits were a reflection of the English soldier, made small of stature to emphasize the amazing and unexpected heroism of ordinary men. Tolkien's emulation of this heroism he encountered during World War I makes his depiction of courage realistic and robust throughout his works. Tolkien also tends to shy away from detailed and intense descriptions of battle. Bilbo being knocked out unconscious in the Battle of the Five Armies, Frodo lost consciousness after being stabbed by the Morgul blade on Weathertop, and Pippin blacked out, missed the last stand at the Black Gate only to wake up in time to hear the eagles are coming. Boromir's heroic defiance of the orbs of the orcs is detailed only in the aftermath of the arrows that pierced him. Likewise, Faramir's rearguard stand is seen from a distance by those watching on the walls in Minas Tirith. Tolkien uses his fairy story to share his con contemplation of war while examining its virtues and weakness. This story depicts the war as he experienced it, traditional values of honor, courage, and valor, which many wartime authors abandon, are embraced by Tolkien while also cautioning against pride, greed, and self-importance. Tolkien shows the reader many sides of the battle, which creates a more profound consideration of the merits of war. Tolkien saw the filth of trench life and, and felt firsthand the intensity of killing and dying. Tolkien wrote to his son, Christopher, about his realization that evil exists on both sides of the war. Quote, I think hopefully I'm not off on my slide. I can't see what number my slide is, so let me make sure. We're going to roll with it. So, um, tokens, <laughs> sorry, tokens saw the filth of trench life and firsthand felt the intensity of killing and dying. Tolkien wrote to his son Christopher about the realization that evil exists on both sides of the war. 
I think the orcs are, quote, I think the orcs are real as real a creation as anything. Only in real life, men are on both sides. Tolkien wrote about his wartime exposure as gray days wasted in wearily going over and over and over again. The dreary topics, the dull backwaters of the art of killing are not enjoyable. These are examples of Tolkien's dislike of war, specifically the aspects of violence towards others. To his oldest son, Michael, he laments the interruption of his formal education to fight in World War II, as his own education was interrupted by World War I. Tolkien writes to his son, Christopher, describing the horrific nature of war, the utter stupid waste of war, not only material, but moral and spiritual, is so staggering to those who have to endure it. Again, Tolkien acknowledges the horrors of war, but he also comments on how war could affect those who endure it. Also, he does not directly address nonviolence, but it seems clear that Tolkien's views on war at least contain some disdain for the whole affair. In his archived correspondence, there are references to Tolkien's anti-war and anti-machine sentiments. In a letter to his son Christopher in 1945, he writes, well, the first war of the machines seemed to be drawing to its final inconclusive chapter, leaving, alas, everyone the poorer, many bereaved or maimed and millions dead, and only one thing triumphant, the machines. He is horrified by the atomic bomb, stating the utter folly of these lunatic physicists to consent to do such work for such war purposes, calmly plotting the destruction of the world. Such explosives in man's hands, while their moral and intellectual status is declining. Hey, Miriam. Just yeah. A quick, just a quick note. You're on the next slide now. So oh, okay. If you just go one down. Okay. You. There you go. Thank you for that. Cool. Um, uh, later in 1956, he writes, he, Frodo, is not in modern terms a pacifist, of course. He was mainly horrified at the prospect of civil war among hobbits. But he had, I suppose, also concluded that physical fighting is less ultimately effective than most good men think it. These letters shed additional light on his distaste for the unnecessary destruction of human life. He concedes that Frodo believed physical fighting was less effective than most think. Far from a glowing embrace of nonviolence, yet Tolkien at least wants the reader to consider if violent action is effective or necessary. If we look to the Lord of the Rings for answers around Tolkien's stance on nonviolence, there is no scarcity for consideration of the complexities of war. War is one of the major themes of Tolkien's legendarium. Faramir, who Tolkien himself has regarded as a character most like him, expresses the simple and realistic view that, quote, war must be while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all. This statement, again, acknowledges that although war is not the preferred choice for conflict resolution, there are times that no other choices are available. Using fairy stories, Tolkien found a canvas perfectly fitted for painting the merits of sacrifice, mercy, courage, and pity. We can see clear examples of nonviolent engagement by looking directly at examples of these attributes throughout Tolkien's work. Courage is most profound in the small and ordinary characters who take on tasks of tremendous dangerousness and importance without hesitation or resistance. Courage is also found in confronting violence with nonviolence, as we see in many of Tolkien's characters. 
This includes Sam, who defies the, dark, the darkest of monsters to protect Frodo, Faramir, who releases the ring from his grasp despite Gondor's needs, and both Frodo and Bilbo, who show courage by putting themselves in harm's way for the benefit of others. Pity is a powerful character attribute that influences the entire development of Middle-earth. Bilbo's encounter with Gollum in The Hobbit and Bilbo um, processes reasons to strike and reasons not to strike, even in the face of violence. He is fearful and justified in striking out, but ultimately a, quote, sudden understanding turned Bilbo's sword. By deciding against striking Gollum, Bilbo shows mercy for him, even though Gollum had planned to harm him. We also see pity as Bilbo feels empathy about how life must be for Gollum and courage as he leaps over the creature to avoid harming him. This example of using characters to explore essential themes shows how, Tolkien's, how Tolkien moved beyond melancholy, anger and frustration towards war to cre create an epic about war that tackled the complex topics of violent and nonviolent engagement. When Gollum later falls, in with Frodo on his march to Mount Doom, the hobbits heed Gandalf's advice and even come to feel a sort of empathy for Gollum. Bilbo and Frodo's mercy towards the creature ultimately saves the day. Gollum's life was spared by Bilbo in the Misty Mountains, by Frodo in the Emin Mule, by Faramir in Ithilien, and by Sam on the slopes of Mount Doom. Without this continued display of mercy and pity, Gollum may, may have been removed and the ring might never have been destroyed. Sauron is undone by the mercy of others. Examples of sacrifice include Frodo, who makes the long journey to Mordor to play his part in winning the war. He was the savior and martyr for the Shire and all of Middle-earth. Similarly, the elves fought against Sauron and supported the ring's destruction, and in doing so, they lost their precious realms. With the failing power of the Three Rings, Rivendell and Lothorian lost their splendor and magic and no longer provided a place for the elves to live freely. Throughout his works, Tolkien also generates ambivalence about the effectiveness of violence. Isildur's military defeat of Sauron is followed closely by his personal inability to destroy the ring. Sam questions the need for violence with the Herodrim, falls through the trees to his death just where Sam and Frodo are hiding. Sam looked at the fallen man and, quote, wondered what the man's name was and where he had come from and if he was really evil at heart or what lies or threats had led him on the long march from his home and if he was really evil of heart. Oh, sorry. And from the long march of home and if he would not rather have stayed there in peace. For Sam, the, ra the raiding heredrum are not just other, he recognizes their common humanity and gives and grieves that it has ended with the death of this soldier. Tolkien uses this example to personalize war and create a stronger consideration for striking out in violence, even when you perceive that something is evil. Tolkien shows the physical devastation of war frequently throughout his book. In the Fellowship of the Ring, Anduin is described by Treebird as the lands that once held the gardens of the Antwives and were alive and beautiful. Over 3,000 years ago, Sauron destroyed them during the War of the Last Alliance, and now they're a wasteland, brown, dried, and dead. The dead marshes are festering devastation, lingering for over 3,000 years with pools 
of fetid water and images of lost fighters, a literal view of the cost of war. Sarn's spreading domination brings about destruction, darkness, and wastelands in the realms he occupies. Sauron turns from the path to evil treachery and takes down the beautiful woods and surrounding area of Orthanc in the tower at the center of Isengard. Tolkien helps readers mourn the loss of the physical world, reminding us that it is not only persons who suffer during war. There are also warnings from those who engage in violence without just cause. Boromir is perhaps the best example in The Lord of the Rings as he is driven to madness by his desire to obtain the ring, which would please his father and use the ring to destroy others while defending his people. The wars waged against Morgoth provide many terrors of war, and the once free elves of the West are drawn deeper and deeper into darkness as they fight against him. The battle of unnumbered tears and the tragedy of Turn Turnbar provides adequate warnings about the risk of glorifying war and fighting for unjust causes. While these stated ambivalences do not represent Tolkien rejection of violence outright, many nonviolent values and critiques of war are present. In The Lord of the Rings, again and again, we see the countercurrents resisting the tides of war and understanding that violence alone cannot defeat Sauron and his evil. Although the, the story's heroes achieve some significant military victories, these are, uh, these are only pro prolonging the inevitable. If the, if the ring remains intact, it will resurface, leaving the evil to, the ma to be managed later. To refuse the path of warfare, to seek non-confrontation, is unthinkable to Tolkien's villain Sauron, who knows only a deep desire for power and thus cannot even consider the path of peaceful resistance that Frodo and Sam take. Ultimately, the hidden and quiet quest of Frodo and Sam to destroy the ring bring about the vanquishing of evil. Of evil. Throughout the ring's progress from the Shire to its eventual destruction in the fires of Mount Doom, numerous individuals are tested with the offer to use the ring of power in battle to face the enemy with his own weapon. This choice lies between the willingness to dominate and accept one's place in a larger community, take the place of the one, or defend the needs of many. Aragorn willingly puts his life and the lives of his troop at risk for the greater good. Quote, we must take ourselves for bait. We must walk open-eyed into that trap with courage, but small hope for ourselves. For my lords, it may well prove that we ourselves shall perish utterly in a black battle far from this living land, so that even if Baradur be thrown down, we shall not live to see a new age. But this, I deem, is our duty. His act is not merely one of aggression or physical contest. It is a sacrifice to gain and hold the attention of an enemy without hope of any military success. However, the primary driver of Tolkien's heroes is not personal glory or renown, but international stability, the prevention of future conflicts and lasting peace. A close reading of the Lord of the Rings in search of nonviolent countercurrents is perhaps the most convincing evidence to support the argument that Tolkien embeds these ideas of nonviolent themes and techniques in his works. Tolkien understood the unhappy balance between the occasional necessity for war on one hand and on the other, the price it exacts from the bodies and souls of its participants. Even if Tolkien rejected nonviolence as a universal ethic, 
he, he created a respectful space for it in consideration for its consideration in the Lord of the Rings. Tolkien understood the doomed balance between the necessity for war and the costs it takes from humans and nature. He was a thoughtful observer of war and the detail and care Tolkien took with his depiction of conflict encouraged the reader to look behind the war and consider things that are most important. He creates a guide for those virtues of courage, pity, mercy, and sacrifice that should be emulated. If we use Tolkien's works to define his thoughts on war, Tolkien believes some wars must be fought, yet we can also see clearly that Tolkien found virtue in nonviolent actions. Tolkien warns against the lust for power and the will to dominate others throughout his works. He also emphasizes leadership, community, and honor, which remain a part of nonviolent philosophies and account for the countercurrents of nonviolence themes present in his works. Understanding Tolkien's views on wars, on war, not only sheds light on his convictions surrounding violent engagement, but also aids the reader towards a deeply meaningful and powerful understanding of his works. It is here I begin to understand how Tolkien's epic of war guided me to consider the moral dilemmas surrounding war and violent confrontation from a variety of different angles. By expanding my understanding of the complexities of war, I begin to see the tenuous balance between pacifism and militarism. The care Tolkien takes showing how one moves from violent engagement to one of peace may account for my connection to this topic. Before my exposure to the Lord of the Rings, my viewpoint was narrow and I did not believe violence could have any merits. Although I, can, I, I still cannot imagine engaging in or encouraging violence to solve conflicts, I have a more comprehensive viewpoint considering that the necessities of war at times. Faramir describes Tolkien's careful consideration of this impasse beautifully. War must be while well, we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour us all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. Excellent. Thanks so much, Miriam. Thank you for that, presenting that. That's a great start to get our conversation going. Um, and uh, if you want to unshare the screen, or yeah, there we go. And uh, I love that you, um, I love that you created for us a book-ended personal conversation uh, that allows us to read cl closely with consequence for in, in our own rereading of Lord of the Rings and and the Legendarium and Tolkien's work. So, I I want to like so for you the so I just want to go through a few thoughts and then we'll come to some questions. So for you, like uh, you didn't grow up with the Lord of the Rings as a child. So like you encountered it as an adult. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I, I guess I was probably like in my high school years. Yeah. So, so you were already a, like a pacifist when you, when you read, uh, read this, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I was already an advocate of nonviolent non intervention. And, yeah. Like, did you feel like that when you, knew you were loving the Lord of the Rings. Did you feel like you had to get a razor blade and take a bumper sticker off your car? Like, <laughs> did you feel that crisis when you're young or is that something that's deepened as you went? No, I, I actually didn't notice it until I was older, you know? I mean, it's part of why I wrote this paper is because as I said, I, I sort of always just like chalked him up as somebody who like, you know, you would include in, in conversations about 
you know, how to, how to manage um, aggression and things like that in a, in a positive way. But as I became more aware of really what the story, you know, and I think actually when the movies came out is when I first was like, oh my gosh, there's so much like just violence. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's the thing that made me sort of say, well, why have you always, I mean, like, that's always been there. Why didn't you see that? And so I, I'm, I'm, you know, what I think sort of happened is I just was like connecting to the pieces that I really loved about the story, the honor and the courage and the sacrifice and, and then sort of not, not really seeing the other side of it. And so um, taking a look at both was helpful. Yeah. When the Lord of the Rings came out, I, I discovered how much running there was how much in that middle book or how much walking there was in, in the in the books which you kind of because you're you know they're talking and there's poems and that landscape so you don't really think of it the same way but yeah right. do you think like i wonder like is there like when we're reading fantasy science fiction the historical stuff do we kind of like are we sort of separating ourselves a bit as we encounter violence so that, like that's a thing that happens in books and i'm a, somebody that sits in my real world is that distancing something we do yeah yeah i think so i i think maybe that's that's a piece of it as you grow older you, you become more alert to some of the horrible things that are happening sometimes you know i mean i think today's you know thinking about all the violence that is happening currently, you know, it, it, it becomes, it becomes more on the forefront and it's harder to just see it from, you know, that outside view. Mm. Yeah, no. And actually it, it's funny, like you're doing that presentation on countercurrents in an epic of war. And I, it's been ever prints in my mind, but Eastern Europe, uh, the Russian uh, attack and occupation of uh, the Ukraine, like that's like I didn't immediately draw that in, and I'm a pretty culturally connected writer. I wonder what sort of little um, foxholes we create in our mind to separate ourselves, uh, you know, from certain kinds of connections, right? You know, we right, yeah, maybe protect ourselves a little bit, right? So, um, yeah, or or just just the, like justify it. There's a lot of violence and and some texts, and it's not all redemptive or or supportive or um satirical or anything like that right right mm. right yeah does it is it different on the screen like when peter jackson takes this epic and visualizes it and gives it motion like that does that change our relationship as as people with like in a culture with a history of violence and where that that issue could could continually come up is that is that a a harder thing a problematic thing like what do you see there yeah, I mean, I, th I think so. I, seeing, again, like I mentioned, I think the movies are sort of what triggered me to like, be like, whoa, so much violence. And then, and, and so part of my question was, is this interpretation of the works accurate? You know, I mean, um, and that's part of what led me to Sigmund was like looking around and, and um, thinking more about, you know, his, his works and then how how it's being depicted is very different and I didn't I hadn't studied his works as like a you know in, in a scholarly way or something like that and so this sort of work has been you know interesting to really look closely at what's actually doing a close reading is probably one of the the things that I learned most through throughout the master's program is how important that is to do close readings and really see what's being said and so yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, and, and but I do think that the visual 
sorry, the visual depiction of works can be very impactful. It's very hard for me to now read um, the books without thinking of all of the characters that uh, Peter Jackson created, you know, and sort of in my head. So I think yeah, those they, are good things and bad things, but. They do weave into us, um, particularly visual. Um, I find it even like if I end up listening to like an audiobook, like I'll, I'll see the film as well as the text kind of as I'm reading, it's very um, immersive for me. Uh, the Peter Jackson Hobbit interpretations, you noted that the text sort of winks away at some points of war, right? The actual conflict. And yet the third Peter Jackson Hobbit film is like all the stuff that happens while Frodo or while um, Bilbo's knocked uh, out, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Or, you know, a third of that film you know, you know, Bilbo would, should have been asleep for, right? Or, or not right. go for, right? Yeah. Um, do, like in your paper, do you then like that winking away effect where we, we come to the moment and then pull away a bit, um, like even in like the Battle of Helm's Deep, which I think is the most detailed battle scene in the trilogy, uh, the six books of Lord of the Rings. Um, but even then there's not a lot of actual detail of the hand-to-hand -hand combat, right? Right. It's actually the stuff that's happening and moving around. But, you know, we hear the count of the body count between Legolas and, and Gimli, but we don't see it happen in the same way that we do on film. Is that winking away? Is, did you is that part of your analysis? Like you think that Tolkien is pulling us back a bit from that? Is that what you were trying to say at that point? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting to, to think about, you know, when when considering how, how much care he probably he took when depicting war and what that meant you know I, I do think that um you know it's it's interesting I never connected that before but when when sort of looking at how he really describes war you know you can see some of the distance he puts in it and and then you know knowing more about his experience and and, and finding some of that out it um you know is it's it's interesting to 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 try to think about is this part of, you know, like is Tolkien protecting us from the horrible things that he had to deal with? Or mm -hmm. is he, you know, is he encouraging, is he encouraging, you know, he, he knows he needs to have battles in there, but he doesn't really want to write about it because, it, you know, or something like that. So trying to think about why the depiction is the way it is. Um, so. Yeah. I want to come back uh, at the end, just to the complexities of, of what you presented on that personal level. Um, but in terms of like approach to the thesis, like was this kind of in your mind, this question in your mind, like when you signed up for Signum ever in and on ago, like the 10 courses in a thesis ago or whatever, eight courses? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, maybe, you know, I, from the very beginning, you know, they talk about, well, you got to start thinking about like what you might want to look at. Um, and in other classes, I had written some about the violence and things like that. And so I, it was something that's been a, a, a theme of mine. And, I, and I, I, I really enjoyed the idea of trying to figure out how to put the personal piece, you know, my, my own sort of like transformation or something inside of the, the paper there, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, excellent. Uh, I think the, um, uh, it did cook in you for, or, no, that's not the right word. It, it did grow inside of you for quite some time. Uh, like, are you naturally, in, I mean, not everybody signs up for an entire master's degree program because they're curious about a particular question, right? Or even because they're 
um, transformed by a, a particular body of work or, or, or writing. Uh, uh, like, are you naturally inclined to like academic writing? Like, is that something that you're drawn to? Um, no, no, <laughs> no, but I, I, you know, I, I love reading and I love writing and I have a very busy life. And I, and I also, I, I, I always found that I was like putting, like putting it off or not really doing it. And so when I um, found out about Signum and I, and I just said, well, I got, you know, you got to like push yourself to sort of do something like that. So it was more, it was mostly a challenge for myself to like get more engaged and, and start to, and, and you know, figure out how to read and write in a, in a, in a better way. And um, yeah, yeah. So it was, it was mostly just to expand. And, and then I, I actually didn't really realize that you could like audit the classes, you know, or something. <laughs> and so I think as I got like, you know, three or four classes in, I was like, why didn't I just like audit it? But it really, you know, what, what I needed to happen was to say, you have a deadline and you have to turn this in and you're getting a grade. And um, so that was part of what pushed me to do that. So yeah, no, I, I, I get it. Uh, I, it. It is true. Like we have a pretty great like audit program, right? The discussion audit or, or just, just attend the lectures when it, when it comes to me, I, I need the, at least the weekly discussions just so that I know that I'm like doing the reading and prepared and stuff. Like I need that. Like, it doesn't matter how much I love the books. I need that kind of you know, tease forward. I think accountability or something. So for me anyway, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, we got a few, a few different kind of comments here um, uh, and some intriguing thoughts. And so let me just kind of start to present them to you. Some comments like, I, you know, Penn says, I love the countercurrents idea. Um, and that does work, I think, well, right? Um, the um, Kate Neville says, like the one invented part, um, like a, an invention uh, that Kate actually liked within the Peter Jackson uh, interpretations was Bilbo using uh, Sting before he met Gollum. And so this gave his choice not to strike Gollum some extra impact. Do you see the, see what um, the, the force of that is? Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 And then uh, Janet Croft notes, uh, you know, the in The Hobbit, of course, the, the battles told in retrospect, it's a children's book. Did, do you think like that switch from, like the move from the Hobbit to, and I haven't read the first edition of the Hobbit, like thinking of this question at all, but like the move from the Hobbit, uh, definitely a children's book, um, though, you know, open to adults to something that's often encountered by children, but certainly written uh, as an adult book. Does that, did that change that kind of um, immersion into the possibility of violence and the realities of that? Um, in the, in, in the Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think that obviously the, you know, the Hobbit, the progression to the Lord of the Rings and his um, expansion on describing really intense things that are happening and, and dangerous things and violent things definitely um, takes place. So it, and it expands a lot in the Lord of the Rings. And I think, uh, you know, I think mainly because, um, you know, he was, he was getting into the story, you know, and really finding finding what he wanted to be writing about and that and that um I think that's part of where he began to like some of his some of the stuff he had dealt with throughout the war was starting to come out into his writing and we see that you know those are the things that I was looking for so 
Yeah, yeah. And it is nice that we have some historical resources, um, people talking about this, um, like Tolkien, you know, Tolkien and his environment, his thoughts, his ideas. So there are some resources um, f f for that. Uh, um, I have I have almost a question, but I'm actually going to pull back from that. I'm actually going to ask you something here that Liz says, which is kind of interesting, and maybe from your um, psychiatric nurse perspective or that that particular hat, like whether this you interpret that differently. But Liz asks, have you seen any evidence of empathy, like other than mercy or pity as specific characters, but empathy in the Hobbit's behavior um, in the Lord of the Rings, I believe here. Um, I, I, I'm trying to think about the difference between empathy and pity. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, pity you work through as a central theme. And I think that that comes out, that comes out in your text. It also comes out, I think, even in the adaptations, that's one, um, mercy a little less, um, in, in the, any adaptation I've seen. Uh, yeah. Empathy, that walk, what is that, I guess, feeling with or walking with emotionally or something? Would that be the, the way you would yeah. want to defy, define that or? Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the most, I think the hobbits are the most empathetic um, beings in the story, it feels like, because they, you know, they are leaving this sort of safe haven of, you know, this amazing place to help help the rest of the world that they didn't even really know existed you know until mm. until they get out there and the, and but they're you know they don't they don't withdraw they they get more and more involved and invested and willing to be a part of what needed to be done and i think that that shows quite a bit of empathy towards just what everybody else has been dealing with around you know the the terror and violence of that so. Yeah, and I wonder to flip that question just a little bit. If if uh, Tolkien, whether instinctively or intentionally, uses the Hobbits to create empathy with us as the readers, I mean, we really walk with them in a way we don't walk with any of the heroic humans or or other um, characters, right? So, right, we like, or at least I do. I don't know. Like, I'm not a walk with characters reader, but I am with the Lord of the Rings. I find myself. Uh, wanting to be sort of Frodo-like or Sam-like. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So it draws us into that experience. Uh, we have a question from Kate. It's an intriguing question, but I, I don't want to say, like you you could totally say no to this one. Do you do you know uh, Paralandra? Do you know C.S. Lewis's? Uh, yeah, it, it was one of the books that we read, I think actually in your class. So okay. yeah. um, and I'm looking at the question here. Um, all right yeah yeah so, yeah you can read it or, or whatever well yeah no i will read it because you and i have privileged the things that nobody else can see but kate yeah. asks have you looked at the moment in paralandra where ransom who's uh i don't know this sort of like philologist academic turned interstellar uh superhero turned divine mystic throughout the series or something anyway at some point he has to choose whether or not to use physical violence to fight um once it it's clear that arguments have become sort of tangible and physical in the discussion so it's breaking 
um, there's like a demonic character who's breaking down this this innocent unfallen character and that when when that breakdown starts to happen physically then ransom has the idea and throws it away and comes back to it about whether or not physical violence will be needed and then chooses that path um and kate asked the question about like thinking of that scene would there have been some sort of inkling conversation about the kind of question you're asking is when when does violence become a necessity of some kind right yeah yeah i i'm and i'm mostly intrigued i know she at the end just said i wonder if this was an ongoing inkling mm -hmm. conversation um in that that piece of it is is something i i wish i could have written more about about maybe how his um his writing and his works were influenced by those that were helping him as he was writing you know that was one piece that i didn't really get to look at if, if there was some influence there but um yeah it is a, and i'm not i i read paralandria um just once a couple of years ago i think so yeah. <laughs> i i don't know that one very well but yeah it does it does seem like it's um something that would be connected yeah it's one i struggle it's a moment i struggle with I'm myself moving back and forth and and seeing the necessity of and then then feeling sort of defeated and reading and then I come back and I, I've just never been reconciled to it um, but that final moment with a golem sort of takes that question out of like Frodo's control in a certain kind of sense right like Frodo has fallen and may do violence but the moment moves past him is that is that right like um yeah the choice is taken away from him in a certain kind of way right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So. i've always i don't know if that's like tolkien protecting frodo or yeah it's it's a right. curious curious one for me right yeah 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 and uh um at least and then one of the other hobbits becomes a uh, a hero like the, like um like cr critical in the in a moment of a defeating um maybe symbolically defeating death i think right the in the way that 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 works um yeah but and then almost it's almost destroys him too right yeah, yeah. these these moments of ambivalence um pen writes uh, violence alone cannot defeat Sauron and thought that was very profound. Can you articulate or elaborate some of those things or characteristics, actions that are needed to defeat Sauron that aren't are not violent themselves, right? And and I think actually um, that's a good question to kind of clarify. I think what is central to what you were saying in the introduction. Um, um, but I think we ended up going mentally to the different examples of courage pity ambivalence that kind of thing so what's the like the what's the the big non-violent action that that is needed to defeat sauron yeah i i um well i spoke a little i guess it's hard to say which was most important um but you know the big thing of, of sparing god so the mercy sort of um you know put towards this creature that um on a number of occasions could have very easily been destroyed or taken out of the plot because of the of the things he did or the way he was acting and um, the mercy that he was shown, um, you know, from um, the mercy that he was shown throughout the throughout the story ended up ultimately so, 
you know, Gollum, Gollum is the reason why the ring gets destroyed in the end. And so if he had been destroyed, we may not have seen that occur. So I think that's probably the big one. I would, yeah. I would guess just sort of winging it. But I do think that, you know, just the, the perseverance, the courage, um, the, the willingness of the hobbits to, you know, just um, trudge forward and, and do what they could to try to to try to make it happen so yeah yeah and there's that moment i think it's in your i don't know if this was in the final bit of your thesis or just in our discussions that let let folly be our cloak like the the whole oh no it's definitely in your in your thesis though the whole the main thrust um is itself an unviolence right the destruction of the ring is a yeah it's a pulling i don't i can't remember the words that you use but uh um like an act of non-violent right piece, right yeah. yeah 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 uh is and and um to me shows the cast of sauron's mind so bent on a particular mode of of relation to the world the violence that can't even imagine the idea of you know choosing another pathway like leaving power leaving violence that sort of thing right right yeah yeah, no, that's right. Uh, and uh, um, Liz uh, uh, actually asked an intriguing question here, particularly when you think of, you know, like the War of the Ring being one of the hi history, um, uh, one of the books of Middle Earth hist history, uh, and Tolkien, I think, referencing, if I recall, Lord of the Rings kind of as the War of the Ring or, or the War of Sauron, that kind of thing. So there's that, that's certainly the thing that's going on um, and Sauron is making war, right? The war is upon us, right? So there's that reality. Liz asks, is that like, I've always thought of the wars in the background. So is war plot A or plot B of the Lord of the Rings? Because I mean, it's not plot A, certainly of the Hobbit, for example, right? So is it plot, is it plot A or plot B? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I have just seen, I, I've always seen it as plot A, you know, that it was like at the forefront and the driving, the driving piece behind all of the other things that are going on. Um, so, yeah, that was, that, that's been my impression of it. Um, yeah. And yeah. maybe, maybe that's more of a recent, like, it's hard for me to think because I've been so focused on that for like, you know, three years or whatever, that, um, you know, it's hard for me to maybe think back when I first read the book about whether that, you know, stood out. And I guess, I guess I said, you know, I was more focused on the, the nonviolent stuff that was happening and didn't even really see the violent stuff. So maybe it is, um, maybe that's part of, part of his skill. I mean, I think that's, one of the amazing things that Tolkien was able to do was to depict um, this war in a way that, you know, we see it from so many different angles and experience it in different ways. Yeah. Or, and maybe plot A, plot B is the wrong um, two sets of things. Maybe it should be more like background foreground, like a painting or like impression, like within a visual piece, right. Uh, yeah. Or the architectural structure, right? You see, there could be other ways of thinking about it, but um, there's some comments here about uh, Bill in the chat, just about Bilbo, uh, or sorry, Frodo and the scouring of the Shire and is it mercy? Is it justice not killing Saruman uh, or not, you know, ideally not killing Saruman. So like that's, and, and I think Frodo's statement, you know, 
limit the violence as much as possible to draw as little blood as possible right that's the ethos and i don't know that he actually raises a sword in that uh in the counter counter uh the scouring of the shire response uh though he is a general in that sense right um that it does seem like the book takes that ambivalence and puts it into that whole scene that whole character moment right um of Frodo in a sense winning this battle against a great magician and his his right hand man without drawing a sword or a bow right it's an intriguing right. yeah an intriguing kind of a thing yeah. um so yeah so I don't know man I, I I love the plot I plot B thing but now that I all of a sudden I wanted to pull back um <laughs> pull back from from that yeah yeah um there's a couple comments too about like going out from the Lord of the Rings. And this kind of terrifies me just a little bit because there was so much to read in your paper. There's stuff you didn't get to spend time close reading. And like a question like, you know, Galadriel and Silmarillion and then like, uh, yeah. and, and her history. And then, which includes a, a, a great violence. And then the way that she uh, welcomes the wayfarers and engages in this final um, uh, war with Sauron, right? Like, there's all those sorts of things, but that would just just be bigger. <laughs> like, I don't know how to put it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just too much, right? It, is there anything else that, like, is there something that you left out was one of the questions here. Uh, Sarah, Sarah Brown, um, uh, Sarah asks, uh, what did you want to include, but had to cut for space or focus, right? Yeah, well, um, for the presentation, I had to cut a, a, a part of the paper out that about allegory and really looking at, um, you know, whether whether his representation of war was allegorical or not. And, and that to me was a really interesting thing, but my presentation already felt <laughs> too long. So I cut that piece out. And um, I think one of the things that are the like, um, like Brenton saying, I, I wasn't able to look at at multiple works, you know, it was like overwhelming to just just do the Lord of the Rings, you know, and so I, I would have been really curious to look more at some of his other writings and see if there were themes throughout each of the writings and similarities that would help maybe to to um, make it more clear that part of what he's doing is representing something in a certain way in, in many different stories or or is it different and um, because I was really curious about what his own belief was for whatever reason, it was important for me to like, try to understand what Tolkien thought about war and like, what would he say to somebody about, should you engage violently with somebody? Uh, and then we, as we worked on the paper, we sort of came to a realization that that wasn't really important. It was more important to understand, like, as a reader, you know, what's your experience of it? And, and so having to shift a little way, a bit of, for, away from, you know, it's not really important what Tolkien believed, although for me, it was like, you know, cause I want to like um, put him up on this sort of pedestal again with like Martin Luther King or, you know, mm. th things like that. So, yeah. You want to put the Frodo lives sticker next to the make peace, not war sticker, right? On the, yes. around the back of the car. Yeah. Uh, and Tolkien does invite that, like give us the story in that sense, as you noted in the paper, there is a giving over to us as the reader um, for, for that kind of question, for that kind of engagement. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think that we can, it's kind of asking the wrong question was Tolkien a pacifist, like unless he has, 
like dealt with the question and the way that we're asking it, it's really, we're asking him, us to make a decision about him that, that wasn't before him in a sense, right? Like the, the spectrum of, uh, is it military, militarism to pacifism that you kind of presented with the um, different acts of nonviolence within that um, spectrum, right? Uh, he needed, he would need to know what we know to answer the question the way that we're wanting to be satisfied. Would that be fair? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. So the uh, um, we've got uh, we want to wrap up here. There's some notes of congratulations here, including uh, um, Janet uh, Croft. Janet Brennan Croft would have been one of the sources that you've read. Uh, sorry, I know. I sort of wish she was still here because. I, like when I sp- I saw her name right before we started, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, because she um, she definitely why her book she wrote a book about war and the works of um, mm. Vulcan, and I used her uh, research a lot. Yeah, that's right. Very and, helpful and clear. And one of the few monographs uh, on that um, also she edited a collection about Tolkien in the war context, right? And um, so some some folks have asked about character connections. I'll combine sort of two questions. Uh, the character that you related to most in the book is one question, and then, but making it more intense, Bethany asks, uh, "What most personifies you?" Um, is there a character that would personify you, um, you know, oh no, actually this is really intriguing. There's your personal connection to a character. I misread the question. And there, is there a character within the series that personifies what you would interpret to be Tolkien's personal or private, um, view of war? Yeah. See the two. Yeah. And there, and there are, you know, I'm not the first person to say this. And I think I mentioned in my paper that, um, people have said, and I think even Tolkien may have said, that Faramir was a character that um, probably most closely represented Tolkien, um, not just his views on war, but also just his, you know, his thoughtfulness and um, sort of go, the way he, he goes about things. So I guess I would say Faramir and his um, willing to, to be careful and considerate and, and thoughtful and wise. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. intriguing. Uh, is that the character that you resonate most with in the Lord of the Rings itself? Um, maybe yes. He's he's definitely one of my favorites. Like Gandalf is also one that I think uh, probably more more frequently I've found that I I agree with and and um, maybe you know connect the most with and most curious about because he's he's um, you know he's powerful but. Um, it's almost like Aslan or something, you know, yeah, a little yeah. bit like has his power, you know, is he safe? No, but he's good. <laughs> there, there is a, an, an, an almost divine quality to his engagement. He's there. He's not there. He has to make choices that he doesn't explain. And, uh, um, but also like um, he's the one that cooks up the plan to destroy the ring, Right to to pull that power out of the question rather than to wield it. Right, so uh, yeah. which would be uh, which would be huge. Um, okay, so the just to kind of bring this to close, I, uh, Kate's actually noting Tom uh, Tom Hillman has a coming book on pity in the Legendarium, and I don't know where that's at either. But thanks for that note, Kate, because I've seen Tom talking about that in social media. That'd be something to watch, and there could be a great kind of connection there. I want to bring this kind of back personally. Like, were you like, 
you've got the crisis, you've got the the thing, the value of the nonviolence, and then you've got the, um, you know, the the Lord of the Rings. Both are building you through life and find their way in different ways. Was there never like a temptation just to kind of like, oh no, no, this is really like a pacifist book, right? And and here's why people are misreading it totally. Like, was there ever? Because you don't, you come in the middle and you say that there's currents and countercurrents of violence and 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 nonviolence, and to miss the nonviolence is to misread the book, right? So, um, was there ever a temp- temptation though to like let your heart kind of move over towards that that um, right. yeah less nuanced reading? Yeah, I mean, I guess I um, I came into it understanding that I was you know I had this sort of naive belief about, you know, how much it might support or, um, you know, uh, preach pacifism. Um, but I guess I did what I wasn't prepared for. And the thing that sort of happened as I did the research was that I was not prepared for myself to sort of shift a little bit in my own views. Right. I mean, I, I was, I was prepared for the idea that Tolkien probably had views that were not pacifist, obviously, and, you know, to sort of encounter that. But what I what I wasn't prepared for is as I went through that, sort of feeling almost convinced or something like that, um, that w- part of what Tolkien allowed me to do was to, to identify that my view of like, pacifism always is the way to go, um, was, isn't, isn't something that, um, that I think after, you know, sort of looking at all of this is that I don't think it's realistic. I think that there are times um, when violence has to occur. And um, I guess the thing I'm hopeful about that we learn about um, is that there are really careful things to do before you engage in violence. And then also a consideration of what you know, if there is something violent that has to happen, how that occurs and, and right. the care that you take around that if you can. So mm-hmm. I, I, that was the piece that was, I think, sort of surprising for me as I wrote this is that I felt my own views sort of shifting a little bit when they had been so concrete before. So yeah, yeah. Uh, no, and, and mostly and not just Tolkien, but being exposed to a lot of the literature that we're exposed to in the program, you know, helps me to see some of the writings about when violence was more commonly done and, and, and some of the honor around engaging in honorable violence, you know, that sort of stuff has helped me to see it in a different way. So. Mm, yeah. And I watched that. I watched your shift over the months that you yeah, were right. I, it was actually relatively early, but in that first few months, I watched that kind of shift and, and you've come to this kind of new conclusion, but it's, it must be particularly complex given your personal context, uh, n- not merely as a, you know, mental health care worker, uh, or specifically a psychiatric nurse, but also within the correction system where the results and the living realities of violence would be such a part of, you know, the, the, the work that you do, right? I mean, it's, it, it has an imprint that's not heroic in most of the cases you encounter. Is that, is that fair? Or, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe that's true that in addition to like, um, you know, the research that I did that helped me to grow, I think also in my life, uh, just being exposed to my work and what I do and being around in a correctional setting where there's lots of violence or violence that has occurred or we're talking about violence and, and sort of understanding more about 
where that comes from and, and how it happens and some of those things. So it certainly is something that's close to my heart. Yeah. And I think as a culture, I think we need to be intelligent and, and creative and productive in the way that we respond so that we don't sort of perpetuate violence, uh, you know, in, in the system of, of uh, restriction and healing and, and community development that we want to create. Right. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, that, that note that you made of like, it's not just whether or not to do something violent, right. But like how one does it, right. The character of that is, is, is really right. critical. Yeah. If it, if it come, if it has to come to that, which hopefully it doesn't, yeah. you know, I, there are things that feel like can be done to, to make it, you know, as honorable as it can be, if there's such a thing. So, Excellent. yeah. All right. Well, I think there's a couple more questions, but we're going to have to leave them for today. I want to uh, thank you, uh, Miriam, and thank the audience. Uh, feel free to put comments in the chat there, folks, just to, to pass on to Miriam. Uh, thank you, Miriam, for your thoughtful presentation. Uh, paper. I just loved seeing this process all the way through. I got the idea from the pitch and I'm not what you have to fight with it. This was not an easy, like I'll just whip off a weekend paper kind of thing. This was a, a year of, of work from our first conversation to now. And so I love being part of it. I want to congratulate you on finishing this and your master's of arts at Signum University. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for your support and thanks everybody for coming. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, folks. This will be up on the uh, website uh, on Signum University's YouTube channel. And I hope you look forward to uh, future uh, projects we have, um, not just on Tolkien, but on a whole array of um, engagement with imaginative literature, Germanic philology, and all kinds of projects. And feel free to reach out to us with ideas or questions. And we hope to see you soon. Take care. Thank you.